Joining us right now, I've, 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 uh, let me preface this by saying I, I've been meaning to try to get an expert to talk more about what is going on in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it is my absolute privilege to welcome Professor Tanisha Fazal from the University of Minnesota. She is a professor of political science at University of Minnesota. She's also an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, and she's kind enough today to take some time today and talk about her analysis and her analysis and thoughts on the Ukrainian crisis. Professor, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time today. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, This has been an interesting conflict to watch in the sense being that when you look at military conflict, there's there's an adage that's out there that comes across quite a bit, that when you're an invading force going into a different country, that it becomes a lot harder for you because it just is. It's just the way it is. Go back to the Civil War. The Union invading the South had a heck of a time, but then the South went into the North and got, you know, beat at Gettysburg. Then you, you know, Afghanistan, Vietnam. When you're an invading force, it's harder to conquer there. Same exact thing seems to be happening here. Russia, who at the beginning of this conflict looked like it was a much more dominant force, we basically have gotten ourselves to a stalemate right now. Is, is that a fair assessment? I think so. Um, and I would also agree with what you said earlier about the challenges of being an invading force. And I think it's actually really interesting in light of that comment to think about, to compare to Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, mm-hmm. which looks quite different to the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, right? The Crimea invasion was much more kind of under the radar, the little green men without Russian, official Russian uniforms. This is a blatant invasion of Ukraine. There's no deniability uh, in this case. And it's absolutely the case that Russia underperformed. I think we're all updating our estimates of Russian power and that the Ukrainian military uh, and people have overperformed. But I also agree, I think that it's it's likely that what the way this war is going to end, at least based on what we're seeing right now, is going to look something along the lines of the kinds of frozen conflicts that we see in other areas in the post-Soviet space. They're, the losses the Russians have experienced are fairly astonishing. Um, the numbers of 3,000-plus tanks almost 300 aircraft, 286 helicopters. And if you look at those numbers, basically that's a tenth of their airplane capacity and up to 20 to 25 percent of their helicopter capacity gone just in this conflict, let alone the the human toll, which, you know, depends on who you're hearing. I mean, it's it sounds like it's well over 120, possibly well over 130,000 people. Russian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine. These are unbelievable losses for what was considered to be a military which would you know on on par with you know something that could give the united states a a bit of a run for its money and granted nuclear weapons aside when you look at these losses they're pretty amazing to see in real time they are um and i and again i think it's led to real updating of russia's capabilities Uh, especially because the U.S. has certainly been thinking about not just possible future conflict and preparing for possible future conflict with China, but also with Russia. Um, And I will say that it's, I think, instructive. A lot of people are are learning um, in the sense uh, about this war because they are thinking about, they're just 
it's it's been a while since we've seen a conventional war like this one. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of the Russian losses are partly at least a result of really poor military medicine on the part of the Russians. And here again, we see a real contrast with the Ukrainians. Um, you know, the there are a lot of reasons why we would expect to see military medicine to have an effect on the battlefield or on battlefield outcomes. You should, you'll have, if you know you're going to be taken care of as a soldier, you'll have better morale. Your units will stay together, so they'll fight better. And just in general, you can bring more people to the fight. Um, but the Ukrainians have really been trained very well by Western forces. I was actually at a conference. Uh, in May of last year, and um, we had a surprise Zoom at the end by the, the chief surgeon of the Ukrainian army. And I don't read or speak Ukrainian, but he um, the slides he was showing to me showed very clearly that the Ukrainians are very well trained in uh, tactical combat casualty care, which is a, a, a system that the U.S. set up. Uh, they're, they're starting to use whole blood. They're using modern tourniquets. But when you look at some of the training videos that have been circulating on, on social media with all the caveats about you know, it's hard to assess the legitimacy of these of these kinds of media. Um, you know, the Russians are using World War II era tourniquets, and yeah. we've seen all sorts of supply uh, reports of Russian uh, forces being very poorly supplied in terms of medi- medicine. And I think that's having an effect on morale, and I think it's also having an effect on the battlefield. Well, and uh, first of all, I should mention in Foreign Policy Magazine, and I'll link to this article, you have an excellent article on this talking about the medical advantage Ukraine has because of the aid supplies that it's gotten. And you're right. It's hard to gauge the legitimacy of it, but I'm not seeing any videos from Russia showing me, you know, anything of modern medical, you know, military medical stuff. I mean, I was in the U.S. Army in the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not seeing anything from that time genre. It is very old stuff. And as you mentioned in the article that, you know, there was, you know, they're basically, they told, the Russians told the soldiers to to, to buy tampons so that if they get shot, they can use those. You know, it's, 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 there definitely seems to be a question whether or not they'll even look for the answer of where in the world did all the money that was supposed to go to this modern Russian military go? Because it clearly did not go to the military. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people in Russia would like to know the answer to that question as well. The You talk about a return to kind of a traditional warfare. One of the things I found to be very interesting about this is that Russia is trying to do a World War One, World War Two trench warfare type of combat. But we're seeing in drones that this, you know, in the same sense as that at one point, you know, militaries used to line everyone up in a row, you know, the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. and wear red so everyone could see you coming and, and march towards the enemy. They realize that probably is not the best tactic. It, it's interesting to see in real time how modern technology, namely drones, seems to be negating the ability of trench warfare to really get you know, you know, entrenched, you know, you know, not trying to be a play on words, but they're, they're clearly, the, the drones are able to just go right over these trenches and drop rounds right in there with precision, which really negates the idea of trench warfare. Yeah, I think it also, I mean, the other two things I would add in terms of armament and strategy, and, you know, given modern technology, are that we're also seeing a lack of, neither side has air superiority. In this war, and so that makes it a really different kind of war from the wars that the U.S. was involved in, and 
say, Afghanistan and Iraq. But the other piece of it that um, I don't think we're hearing very much about, and on, you know, I'll be honest and say I'm kind of trying to puzzle through this myself, is that both Russia and UK, Ukraine have very strong cyber capabilities. Uh, and so you have to imagine, and I certainly would imagine, that there are a lot of cyber attacks happening. But the nature of cyber is that we, you oftentimes don't hear about the attacks. That's kind of the point. Um, and so I think it's, that's probably also something that's happening that we're not hearing very much about. How do you think it is that the world miscalculated the the the, the preparedness of the Russians? And once again, I, I, the Russians are doing well just because of the size of military they have, the size of the population they can draw upon to throw into a conflict. That is definitely an advantage that they do have here. But on all levels, as you just talked about, there there's there really isn't a lot of air presence here. They're 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 throwing you know millions and millions of missiles at Ukraine, but they're not throwing sorties into attack specific targets within Ukraine per se. How do you think? You know, is there any speculation by the 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 analysts of uh, the, the analysts and the and the the people out there that have studied this stuff on why that the Russian military was presumed to be much stronger than it is? Um, I don't think I've, I have not seen that. It's a really good question. Certainly, like I said, we're updating now. Um, I think also it's a really interesting question just to ask why Russia thought they could win this war, right? Yes, um, yes. And, and here, I, you know, I'm not an expert in Russian politics, but based on what I have read from people who are experts in Russian politics, I think that we have to really look at the kind of regime that Putin sits at the head of, um, and probably the kind of um, information that he's getting, or frankly not getting, right? Because I think his, you know, my sense is that he's been able to surround himself with a series of of yes men and maybe some yes women as well, um, who have just given him really bad information, and that's part of what made Russia uh, overestimate its own capabilities at the start of the war, especially. Professor Tanisha Fazal is joining us, political science professor at the University of Minnesota. You, it, it, I've read one analysis that says that Russia's entire goal was to try to take Ukraine as quickly as possible. And when that failed, that they were, that's when they were in trouble because they just did not have the, the, the management or, you know, military, the, 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 the product on the ground to get into this sustained conflict. And right now it shows because, once again, they're pulling people out of prisons in Russia to go fight, not giving them any equipment, throwing them onto front lines. It, it really is they, – they really gamble, it seems like, that they, would, that they would have control of Ukraine within a week or two weeks. And when that didn't happen, this slow decline has really sort of you know, you know, gripped them, and there is not going to be a quick solution to this conflict in any capacity. Yeah, I think that the Russians not only overestimated their own capability, but very much underestimated the Ukrainians, who have frankly been preparing for another invasion since 2014 mm. on every dimension. The uh, I, I want to talk about uh, you also um, were in foreign affairs here. They, they were asking about territorial concessions and where this is going to go eventually. And I pretty much agree with you 100 percent here. I know if I if I may be able to read this. Um, you're, you're, neither side has a political slack to back down, at least right now. Ukraine is overperformed militarily. 
and is extremely unlikely to ratify any territorial concessions to Russia, while Russia has underperformed and it would be extremely politically costly for Putin to withdraw from Ukraine. The most likely outcome is a protracted frozen conflict where both sides continue to contest ownership of disputed territories, but prolonged fighting continues at a lower intensity. I agree with that assessment. Talk a little bit about how you came to that assessment. Well, I think, you know, I I can't see any Ukrainian leader, certainly not Zelensky, but even a successor to Zelensky, formally conceding any Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, not just the parts of eastern Ukraine that have been taken over more recently by Russia, uh, to Russia and any kind of international legal agreement. I I just don't think that that is something that would ever be supported by the Ukrainian people. Um, and I think Putin has staked a lot on this war as well and is also not in a position to back down. Um, you know, I think that I think this is a very, very unlikely scenario, but I think the only way that could change would be if there would be a regime or leader change in Russia. But again, I don't think that's necessarily a very likely scenario. But because it's just not politically feasible for either side or leaders of either side, to concede publicly uh, any kind of, uh, or, you know, really agree to publicly any kind of loss of territory, either Ukrainian territory that is that, that belongs to Ukraine under in- international law or territory that Russia has claimed for itself. I just I think we're we're stuck. We're at a stalemate, and you know, combine that with the military stalemate. There's really no incentive right now for either side to back down. Well, and, and it is fascinating to watch the conflict unfold in front of our eyes right now because it really is this case where Ukraine is overperforming. They're using the technology that they have, the weapons that they have with almost precision. But at the same time, they're running up against an enemy that has no problem in sacrificing a few hundred soldiers to get a hundred yards of land. And it it does seem like that at the best here – you know, I agree with you. Unless that Putin is gone, that I just do not see Russia, you know, being pulling back and stopping this conflict in any in any kind of quick term until the unless the Ukrainians literally push them back out of Ukraine. I think that's right. And you know, what's the really sad about all of this is, I mean, there are a lot of sad aspects, but I think one of the ones that concerns me the most is that civilians are paying the price. And yes. this is something that we tend to see in any war where um, there's a goal of annexation or taking territory is that these, you know, all war is brutal because war is defined by trying to kill other people. Um, but in wars where you have one state trying to take the territory of another state, a lot of times what you see are these kinds of depopulation attempts. Um, and we're definitely seeing that in this conflict. And again, civilians are paying the price. Well, and, and regardless of whom controls the land, the the, the effort of destruction uh, that has been left behind is is you know equivalent of what Sherman did to Georgia. I mean, it's it's scouring these cities clean. It's it's you know wiping out every building, everything there. So even if the Russians hold on to it, I mean, and I just don't see the Russians putting forward a lot of money to rehabilitate these towns if they're occupying them at a later date. I, I just it is going to be a massive project to bring the civilian populations back to these these war torn areas. 
I think it's right, and it's going to require an enormous amount of aid to rebuild Ukraine. I mean, there was a story just this morning along the lines of what you're saying about how there's a reservoir, a major reservoir in Ukraine, you know, about the size of the Great Salt Lake, that's being drained um, by Russia. And there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion about why that's so, um, but the consequences for uh, the availability of drinking water for for being able to maintain cooling at the Zaporizhia nu- nuclear plant um, are really really scary and have serious implications for civilians today, but also for the long term in terms of the viability and the the challenges of, of living in that area. This brings up the other interesting element of this is like what is Putin's end game here? Um, say that they control various territories in Ukraine beyond the Crimea. Crimea was very different. There was a lot of, you know, pro-Russian sentiment in Crimea. And so it made that holding that territory a lot easier. This is going to make what Britain had to do in Northern Ireland seem like a cakewalk. You're going to have you're going to send in Russian troops to occupy these Ukrainian regions. Even if there was concession, it's they're going to I just how in the world is Russia even going to hold on to these territories without having a daily body count in the hundreds? I think that Russia would have to use a great deal of force to hold on to those territories. But I will say also that it's never been clear to me precisely what Putin's warning was. Was it to take over all of Ukraine? Was it to replace Zelensky and have a puppet regime along the lines of what we saw in the Soviet-controlled states? In Eastern Europe during the Cold War? Was it to a more limited territorial aim with respect to uh, Eastern Ukraine, which is kind of a, where we are right now? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that was what the aim was to start a year ago. Does this kind of end the idea? I mean, I remember when this started, the first thing people were saying, well, this is just the beginning. He wants all the Russian territories back. He's going to go after them. He might even go after Finland. You know, there is this idea that the Russians were just trying to rebuild the USSR uh, under their their current regime. Does this kind of end that talk? Because, frankly, I don't think a lot of other countries are really concerned about the Russians right now, considering the losses they're taking in Ukraine. I disagree that other countries are not concerned. I think that, the you know, uh, we've seen a some really serious shifts in Europe, right? I mean, you know, look at what Germany has done with respect to their defense budget. Um, look at the, you know, Sweden and, and Finland joining NATO. This is, this is, these are all signs of concern. And certainly um, the Poles, the Romanians, the Moldovans are very concerned uh, about possible Russian incursions. I mean, I think the implication of your question is that it, because Russia is not as strong as it appeared to be, maybe we can be a little bit less concerned, but I think that what you know, there's that there's some there's something to that, but um, I think that what we're likely to see is not a grand enterprise to try and reestablish imperial Russia, but a reversion to the kinds of strategies that Russia was using more recently, which do tend to be these kinds of under the radar type strategies um, to create political instability, to exert influence more quietly. Uh, but not the kind. I think we're unlikely to see another blatant aggression along the lines of what we saw in February 2022 against Ukraine. But I, I don't think Russia is going to um, necessarily uh, stop or curtail its ambitions in, in the area. 
Well, and to back up your point 100%, I mean, Russians were firing rockets from the Black Sea over Moldova and Romania to get yeah. uh, the western parts of Ukraine. I think it was even earlier today that they were doing that, which was violating their airspace, and the Russians don't seem to be too concerned about that. So the is this really – there have been some people who have suspected this is just really a cash grab that the Russians are looking at anything that they can generate money from, namely salt mines, other you know natural resources that are easy to get to basically supplant the wealthy Russians who clearly seem to be skimming the money off the top of the military. Uh, they, you know, is it just, I mean, is that what we're looking at? Is this just something where the Russians are looking and say, hey, we, if we can't get control of this mining region, that's a lot of extra money for us? Again, I think it's quite unclear because I think that the war aims of Russia may have shifted in the past mm-hmm. year. So what the aims were at the start um, may have been may have been updated and may have been needed to be updated precisely because of this um, overperforming of the Ukrainians and underperforming of the of the Russians. So it's I think it's quite a slippery thing, and it's really hard to say what the aim is. Mm. You're you going back to what you said. The final question here, going back to what you said earlier, is that unless there's a regime change, but you don't see that, you know, there's if 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 Putin, for whatever reason, wasn't in power, he either dies or is overthrown. Does that give Russia the ability to get out of there and maybe just say, hey, we'll still keep Crimea, but we're out of here. We're done. Do you think that that would be, a, you know, I mean, obviously it's a possible outcome, but the likelihood of that, what do you what do you think the likelihood of that would be if there was a change in leadership in Russia? I think it depends greatly on how that change of leadership could happen and also on who the new leader is, because um, there is a way in which you could have a new leader because uh, this war is not necessarily popular in in Russia. There are plenty of people in Russia who have been opposing it from the start, Um, although, of course, there have been a lot of issues about the kinds of information that Russians have access to uh, regarding the war. But if if a new leader were able to paint this war as a mistake of Putin and a war that's very much owned by Putin, um, then I think it makes it more likely that you could get some sort of a withdrawal Although I don't know that you'd ever get 100% withdrawal. Uh, This has been an absolute privilege chatting with you. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate your analysis on this. I'll drive people, I'll post the articles that I did mention earlier, but I also will uh, drive people to go to TanishaFazal.com. That's your own private webpage where you have your research and other data that you have put up there. I'll encourage people to follow you there. Uh, Professor, uh, you are more than welcome to come back to my show anytime. Thank you very much. I appreciate your insight today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Tanisha Fazal of political science at the University of Minnesota, giving uh, her take on uh, her thoughts on on Ukraine and and Russia. Uh, Fascinating stuff. We'll talk more about this when we do return. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.